Hello, and welcome to Stonebridge's online service. We are glad that you are tuning in with us and checking in with us online today. Uh, just to let you know, the way this service works now is we will dive into the scripture, we'll have a sermon, and then after that, there will be two songs on the end to help guide you through worship. Um, and then we'll close with a blessing at the end. But I invite you first to listen to some announcements, to hear about what's going on at Stonebridge Community Church so that you can get involved and you can be involved in what we are doing as the people of God here in Simi Valley. So I invite you to hear some announcements and then listen to the sermon and let's reflect on the word of God together. So God bless you. Thank you for tuning in with us and let us worship together now. Welcome to Stonebridge. Here are some announcements and things to know. During this time in the life of the church, it's important to continue contributing to the ongoing ministry of Stonebridge. Here are the ways in which you can give. You can give online through our website at stonebridgecme.com. Click on online giving. You can give through your bank's bill pay option, or you can send in your offering through the mail. If you'd like offering envelopes sent to you, please contact the church office. Ventura County is now in the orange tier and more and more people are choosing to get vaccinated. Consequently, Stonebridge is entering the next phase towards reopening, which means we are now meeting weekly for worship. Join us outdoors on Saturday nights at 5.30 or indoors on Sunday mornings at 10.30. Kids and teen programming is available during the Saturday night service, while the nursery is open on Sunday mornings for infants through five years old. Pre-registration is still required, so please register by noon on Fridays. Stonebridge is preparing our campus to welcome back members, friends, and new guests. This means we are recruiting those who are ready and willing to serve as weekend greeters. If you're excited about worshiping again in person, your excitement can be contagious. Channel your excitement positively by contacting the church office to sign up. On Sunday, May 23rd at 2 p.m., we will be having a congregational meeting over Zoom. The purpose of the meeting is to elect our new church officers and to approve our pastor's terms of call. Registration required ahead of time. Registration has opened up for Stonebridge Day Camp. Join us June 28th through July 2nd for a week of fun in the mountains of Rocky Railway. Kids will discover that trusting Jesus will pull them through life's ups and downs. You can trust that Stonebridge will be following local and state COVID precautions carefully. Day camp will have a reduced amount of kids, and at this time, masks are required. Sign up by visiting our website. We would love to know that you're participating in worship. Continue to share your news, prayers, and praises by emailing prayers at stonebridgecme.com. Or if you're following along in version, please take the time to fill out the e-connection card you are an important part of Stonebridge's community of faith. Once again, welcome to worship. Hello, I'm Pastor John, and we are continuing our sermon series entitled Revealed God at Work, where we are looking at the signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. And we're looking at these signs so that we can see how Jesus worked back then, so we can see how he works today. And this week, we'll be looking at the sixth sign that Jesus performs, where Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And I'll be reading from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. So I invite you to hear the word of God. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to join with me in prayer. Please pray with me. Lord, open us up to your scriptures now. Through this story in John chapter 9, through looking at this sign that you accomplished all those years ago, open us up to your work in the world now. Open up our eyes, Lord. In the same way that this man's eyes were opened, open up our eyes so that we can see you clearly. Change our understanding of this world, Lord, so that we can see your work more clearly. We thank you. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So with this sign that Jesus performs here in John chapter 9, there are two things that really bother me about this sign. The the first of them isn't really that important, but I'm just going to be really honest here. I think that out of all of Jesus's signs and all of Jesus's miracles, this is the grossest one. I mean, he spits into the ground and uses his saliva to make mud and then rubs saliva-based mud on this man's eyes. Now, I know that it's Jesus. I know that There's miraculous powers there in his saliva and it works. And this man probably didn't even think about how gross this was, but it's kind of gross. And it makes me wonder how many other people have had to endure saliva, mud, spit being rubbed on their eyes because of this example, especially with COVID now and the distancing and all the things we've learned about germs. Yeah, this one's a little gross to me. Um, Again, though, that doesn't matter. And if I were blind, go ahead, Jesus. Rub mud spit on my eyes, please. That's the first thing that bothers me about this. That's always kind of bothered me. Made me a little squeamish about this one. The second thing, though, that I think is important is this question that Jesus' disciples ask him. They're walking along. They see a man born blind from, from his very birth. He was blind. And the disciples ask him, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That question, it really just kind of irks me. Because it shows this assumption about sin that was really common in Jesus' day. It's this assumption about sin that if you had some sort of physical ailment, it was your fault. Somehow, you sinned to cause this, or your parents sinned to cause this physical ailment. So people who were blind in Jesus's culture, people who were deaf, 
um, people who had any sort of mutilation on their, of their face or of a limb, um, even if they had a broken foot for a while, people who had any sort of physical ailments or deformities, they were viewed as sinners. So on top of whatever it was they dealt with physically, they had to deal with society calling them sinners, labeling them as sinners, and defining them by the sin they must have done to earn this physical ailment. So yes, it bothers me that the disciples that have been following Jesus, that have seen all these works, that that is their view of sin. And Jesus, he corrects this view. He tells them that isn't the case, that there's more going on here. And I'm grateful that Jesus does correct them. But what really bothers me is that view of sin, it didn't just end that day, even though Jesus corrects his disciples. This view of sin, it continued on through history. And we see it numerous times in the church. Now, I think it bothers me the most because the way we talk about sin, it can be downright dangerous. And I don't think I'm just exaggerating when I say that. I think that the way we talk about sin, it can cause literal danger and harm in people's lives. And it has done that throughout the history of the church. When we're not careful about how we talk about sin, and we're not reflective about how we talk about sin, we can betray that we actually have the same view that Jesus' disciples asked that day that was so prominent in Jesus' culture. One example of this that I think clearly highlights that this actually is dangerous, it relates to a man named Cotton Mather. Now, Cotton Mather is somebody who had many positive contributions to the church. He was one of the first intellectuals in the Americas. Before the United States was even a country, he was there as a pastor in the New England area, a very prominent pastor. He was just after the Puritan era. But in style and in substance, he was essentially an extension of the Puritan era. And, but Cotton Mather, he was intelligent. He was one of the first intellectuals, like I said. And he actually was the first Christian leader in the United States that we know of who embraced science. He believed that science, observing God's world through experimentation, that aspect of the enlightenment that led to the scientific method, he thought that that would just go hand in hand with faith, that learning about God's creation ultimately can only teach us more about God. So he encouraged Christians to engage science. So any Christians who think science and faith, that they can work together, well, Cotton Mather was one of the first to express that view. So he had positive contributions that are important to point out. But what Cotton Mather is most famous for is his participation and his leadership in the Salem Witch Trials. And if you haven't heard of Cotton Mather, you probably have heard of the Salem Witch Trials. It was this time period in the colonies, uh, again, before the United States had become a separate nation, but in the colonies, the British colonies in the United States, Christians became obsessed with the idea of witches. And Christians lifted up the, the sin of witchcraft and elevated it and began defining women and sometimes young girls by their perception of this sin. Even if the accusations were weak accusations, there was this fervor around witchcraft that 
Everybody felt like they had to just be safe to make sure that we got rid of these sinners. That if there were any sinners practicing witchcraft, we had to get rid of them. And when I say that this kind of talk is dangerous, it cost the lives of young girls and women because they were labeled witches. The, the sin of witchcraft was elevated to this point in their society that young girls would undergo trials. And when I say trials, it was nothing like a trial we think of. It was things like they would throw a, a woman or a girl into a river. And if she floated, they would take her out and take her life because witches floated. But if she sank, she would drown, but she'd be absolved of being a witch. You can see there was no way of winning this trial. And it was because people like Cotton Mather talked about sin in an irresponsible way. They elevated one sin above all other types of sin. And they felt like we had to get rid of the people who are practicing this one sin. And what they did is they began defining human beings by what they perceived to be a person's sin. And it was dangerous. Now, we can think that maybe we've done better since Cotton Mather, but we don't have to go that far back to see prominent examples of this type of thinking um, in our world today. I mean, think about Hurricane Katrina. After Hurricane Katrina hit the New Orleans area, how many Christian preachers came out and said that this was because there were sinners in New Orleans and that those sinners, they had incurred the wrath of God. So God destroyed the city. Never mind the fact that tens of thousands of Christians lost their lives in New Orleans. Never mind the fact also that other areas that didn't have the so-called sinners that were in New Orleans also were devastated by this. And never mind the fact that in every single city you go to throughout the world, you're going to find sinners. And never mind the fact that God promised after the flood to not do things like that again. So we still have this view, though, that if terrible things happen, it's because somebody sinned. We still have this view that we can define people by their sin. Now, don't get me wrong. Christians have to talk about sin. Because the Bible talks about sin, because Jesus talks about sin, we Christians, we have to talk about sin. And I know it makes people uncomfortable, but we have to do it. It's important. Sin is real. But as we do so, we have to be very, very careful and very responsible in how we talk about sin. And we have to look closely at Jesus's example of how Jesus addressed sin and make sure that our language about sin, it reflects Jesus's language about sin and our approach to sin and how we treat people that the culture around us would call sinners and elevate certain types of sin and define people by their sin. We have to look at how Jesus treated people who dealt with that. And this case of this blind man is an example of this. I think that there are numerous lessons we can learn from Jesus when it comes to talking about sin. And like I said, as Christians, we have to talk about sin, but we also have to do so responsibly. And we have to do it in a way that Jesus did it. Now, one thing you notice in Jesus' example is that when he does talk about sin— He's not doing it so that he can have control over somebody's life. 
He's not doing it so that he can just control somebody's behavior. Control isn't the motivation here. So when we talk about sin, we have to be very, very careful to make sure that our motivation isn't just that we control other people or control their behavior. Jesus is the one who will ultimately correct any behavior that needs to be corrected. The Holy Spirit is the one who works on someone's life to convict them to change their behavior. We need to just point people to Jesus and help people see Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's the one who works on changing behaviors. We also have to recognize that we can't avoid sin just by changing our behavior. When we think that we can, we diminish sin. We're not taking sin seriously enough. But sin is like a disease that has infected this whole world. Changing a few behaviors, it's not going to stop us from sinning. It's not going to blind it's not going to make it so that we never interact with sin. It doesn't work that way. We don't get to control other people's behavior and we don't get to control sin. That's just not the position God has placed us in. We also whenever we're talking about sin, we have to recognize that we can't try to use our ideas of sin to control our own lives. I mean, look at the way the disciples are talking about sin here. Who sinned, Jesus? This man or his parents that he was born blind? The implication there, their their assumption is that if somebody hadn't sinned, if this man or his parents hadn't sinned, then this man would have not been born blind. It's a way of controlling a bad thing that may happen in somebody's life. And you can see this too. If somebody ever comes up to you and says, if you just stop sinning, your cancer will go away. Or if you just stop sinning, your finances will be restored to what they should be. That's a way of controlling your life. That's not how it works though. That's not the way Jesus teaches us to talk about sin here in John chapter 9. The other thing I think is important for us to remember when we talk about sin is that our view of sin, our pronouncements of sin, when we try to point out sin in somebody's life, our view, our perception is affected by sin also. Jesus gets at this in the book of Matthew when he talks about if you want to point out the speck in somebody else's eye, first look at the plank in your own eye. Sin distorts our perception of other people's sin. So whenever we talk about sin, we have to have deep humility, recognizing we might be wrong. And we look at that example that I brought up of Cotton Mather and what if he and the people around him had had more humility? Maybe those girls and those women in Salem witch trials wouldn't have had to lose their lives if they had just had more humility in the way they talked about the sin of witchcraft. We have to be very careful that we have humility so that we don't start defining people by what we perceive to be their sin. And instead, we're able to still recognize that even if we think that there is sin in somebody's life, that person is still a child of God. It is still somebody that God loves dearly and that nobody is beyond redemption. And though we may see sin in their lives, we don't know what God is doing in their lives, how God might be working. We have to have that humility as we talk about sin. And then I think John chapter 9 and this sign that Jesus accomplishes and the way he interacts with this blind man and his disciples, I think one of the main things that it shows us is that with Jesus' example, he was much less focused on human sin than he was on the work of God in someone's life. Jesus was much more focused on the work of God. Now, Jesus does talk about sin, and I'm not saying that he ignores sin entirely. 
He does address sin, but he does so in a way that highlights the work of God in a person's life. And when we talk about sin, we should be doing it with the motivation of how do we help somebody see God working in their lives to redeem them, to restore them? How do we help them see God's love for them? When we talk about sin, how do we do it in a way that reveals God's work and doesn't just focus on human behavior? I think that this is important because if your primary focus is sin— either yours or others, you run the risk of missing out on seeing God's work. I love this John chapter 9 story and the sign that Jesus accomplishes because after he gets done with the sin conversation of was it this man or his parents, after Jesus moves the conversation past that question and tells his disciples, no, this is happening so that God's work can be revealed, we start to see the character of this blind man come through more clearly. This story, it goes on past verse 12. It's actually a really lengthy story. I encourage you to read it sometime this week. Just pick up John chapter 9 and read through it. But this blind man, this man who was formerly blind, who Jesus heals, he becomes one of the most dynamic witnesses to Jesus. And he's willing to witness to Jesus and witness to God's work through Jesus, even at expense to himself. He ends up losing things that have been restored to him. Keep in mind, he, early on, he was a beggar. Everybody knew he was a beggar. He was viewed as a sinner. Everybody would have known that about him. He would have been pushed out of society. He wouldn't have been able to participate in his synagogue. Um, There would have been boundaries around what he could do. But then when Jesus restores his sight, he doesn't just restore his sight. He restores his ability to interact with his community. But then the Pharisees, they show up. And they want this man to say bad things about Jesus. They want this man to say negative things about Jesus, and he refuses to do so. He keeps saying, have we ever seen somebody open up somebody's eyes like this? Has, how could Jesus not be from God if he's able to do what he just did in restoring this man's sight? This blind man, the man formerly blind, he refuses to say anything negative about Jesus, and he just praises Jesus over and over and over again to the point that he's kicked out of the synagogue. Though this has just been restored to him, he's willing to lose it all again, this time for Jesus' sake. And he ends up following Jesus on the road. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. He's one of the most interesting characters in the Gospel of John to me. Now think about this, though. If Jesus hadn't addressed his disciples' question in the way that he did, We would have never seen this man's character. We would have never seen the work of God, not just that Jesus performs, but the work of God in this man's life as he becomes completely devoted and committed to Jesus. And how much might we miss out on if we never let go of our views of sin that the disciples are displaying here? If all we're focused on is human behavior and we're not seeking out the work of God in somebody's life, What might we miss out on? Now, I said at the beginning that this question the disciples ask, that it really bothers me, and it does, because of that assumption that it reveals, and because I still think that assumption is with so many people in the church. Um, Not just, I'm not saying the church is Stonebridge, but just church at large. 
But I also do appreciate this question because at least the disciples were willing to ask questions about their views of sin. At least they were willing to reflect on their views of sin. And their question and their reflection, it provides the opportunity for Jesus to correct them. So I think for us today, we have our views of sin. And it is important that we have views of sin. And like I said, it is important that we do talk about sin. But we have to do so responsibly. And we as Christians have to be open to the possibility that our views of sin need to be corrected by Jesus. We need to be open to the possibility that maybe our views of sin get in the way of us seeing the work of God. And seeing the work of God, that should be what drives us. So I'm grateful that Jesus' disciples asked him that question, even though it does bother me. But I'm more grateful for Jesus' answer, for Jesus' response, for the way Jesus interacts with this blind man who would have been viewed as a sinner, the way Jesus frees this man from that view, frees this man from blindness also. And then I'm grateful for the example of this blind man who begins following Jesus, who becomes devoted to Jesus, who becomes one of the most dynamic witnesses of Jesus in the Gospel of John. I'm grateful that we get to see the work of God in this man's life. So may God open up our eyes to other works and other wonders that we could see in our world. And in those moments where we start finding ourselves focused on somebody else's sin or focused on our own sin, may we seek the work of God in the midst of that and seek to find the ways God is working in somebody's lives or in our own lives despite the presence of sin, and come alongside God's work in that. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. We need no other hiding place. Hope is safe within your name. This we know, this we know. You promise never to forsake. But you began, you will sustain. This we know, this we
as you go wherever it is God may call you, may you go focused on God's work. May you go seeking the work of God out in the lives of anybody that God brings into your life. And may you go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the love of the Father. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go in peace. Amen.